established in 1993, they have adopted out over 18,000 dogs and cats. Visit Hopalong Animal Rescue at www.hopalong.org. And you are tuned in to KPFA in Berkeley, 94.1, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. 3 p.m., stay tuned now for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is Tuesday, and July the 12th, 2011. I kid you not. <laughs> anyway, right, yes, it's Tuesday, it's July, and it's raining. This is the Garden of Eden. It is closing time in the garden, in the gardens of the West. Sunset, twilight for some of us, more mayhem in the Middle East, assassination nation, wow. Oh. Of course, in other places, it's the Arab Spring, things are just opening up. Uh, most human beings on earth today are under 25 years of age and just thrilled to be alive. Uh, the love laws are getting wiser, kinder, uh, well, <laughs> sort of. In the uh, 11 July issue of the New Yorker, the editor David Remnick writes, I quote, the struggle for marriage equality is about more than the definition of marriage. It's about the definition of justice. Okay, well, that's pretty profound. I can go along with that. Of course, I'm, I'm at the other end of the... the well, I, I, I was raised in an era... When we thought the marriages and the, the life in the military were the bottom of the barrel, good God, you know. I never thought we'd be fighting for the right to be in the military and to uh, marry the love of, oh, well, well, don't, don't be, don't be negative, Jennifer. Try to be upbeat. I have a letter telling me that I must be upbeat. Uh, anyway, uh, I'll talk about my mail later. Some of it is very, very charming and supportive. Anyway, uh, I guess, yes, justice, justice. Ah, right. Rupert Murdoch, justice. Wow. 
hopefully a little justice over there. Uh, I'd like to be in London this week just to, to see all that brouhaha. Last night, I dug out uh, my favorite quotes on the press. And they're all so obvious. You know, Thomas Jefferson had all sorts of very unkind things to say about the press. Uh, really, really awful. And then he turns around and he says that uh, if it comes to it, if he had to choose between a government without a free press or the free press without the government, he would, in the end, choose the latter. That is to say, yes, free press would be on his list before Government, I take his point, yes. We call it the fourth estate. Uh, I think yellow journalism is uh, inevitable. It's kind of like human behavior. Uh, we try all the terrible things first, and then we get around to being uh, sane. I don't know. Uh, I guess I guess Rupert Murdoch is 80, and he will come to the party. It may be too late to matter. Uh Read Marshall McLuhan for all the, all the, uh, to call it jargon about mass media, mass communication, all the good things it does and all the bad things it does, and I just keep thinking that maybe the, the picture, the big picture, is all the more vivid, uh, not just because we have television, mass communication, film. Uh, but because our species, the human species, is going to hit 7 billion this year. There's just more of us, folks. There's just so much more happening. Such a multitude of ups and downs. Um, so much blood and carnage and so much joy and ecstasy. It all seems much more extreme. Uh, the disaster de jour is now... A disaster or a celebration every hour, every moment. Uh, the breakthroughs, the golden moments, actually, lately they've been coming too fast to keep track, to write them down. Uh, I see the beauty exploding and then all our hopes imploding. Uh, oh, boy. Wow, save me the waltz. One more dance before we die. Emily Dickinson once wrote about the ways that existence itself is so overwhelming. Uh, just this being alive. She said there's no time to think about anything except uh, the magic of living and breathing, the miracle of existence itself. Then, of course, she... <laughs> goes right on to write about this stunning news that it will not always be so. Yes, it's a funny old world. You'll be lucky if you get out of it alive, as W.C. Fields remarked. The poetic theme of mutability. I love it. Uh, life and death. All of a piece, two sides of the same coin. As the late Betty Ford learned last Friday, after 93 years as an Earth woman, I wonder if Betty Ford regretted 
not having stayed on in Martha Graham's dance company there in New York. That was her youthful moment, a glorious moment of creativity. The fates of so many women born in Betty Ford's time uh, fascinates me. I'd see, I came along 16 years later, but still, most of the women, yes, most of the women back there in the mid-20th century here in the U.S. of A., uh, we struggled to live independent lives, whatever that means. You remember that nonsense about, uh, you can't have it all, but you can have, uh, you can have it all if you're willing to take it one thing at a time, you know pinch of this and a pinch of that. <laughs> anyway, after she got to be first lady, I imagine Betty Ford needed a drink. Uh, her mom had told her to come home from New York, you know, from that Martha Graham episode. The result was marriage to Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford. Then, of course, she was mother to all those kids, uh, Betty, Betty Ford once described herself as an ordinary woman in an extraordinary role. Yep, kind of a accident, yes. Nobody expected Gerald Ford to be president, and she certainly hadn't expected to end up in the White House. Um, she did what she could with the hand she was dealt. Uh, I think... The most impressive thing about her uh, her thoughts before she died, uh, she said that she wanted people to know that uh, the thing that impressed her the most was the climate of, let's call it, uh, bitterness, divisiveness in Washington, D.C., the, the fights in Congress, you know. Um, it's, what is it? Um, I guess all of her substance abuse would seem to say that she would not have chosen that life she got. Uh, but it's not what they take away from you that matters. It's what you do with what's left. Uh, I think, what is that? She tried to, she tried to help people, um, you know, uh, she tried to talk about ways in which we might live more uh, what you call it, more humane lives. Uh, I remember at the time, uh, you remember old Newt Gingrich? He was one of those who poisoned the atmosphere in Washington, D.C. Uh, 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 no social relations, yes. No dining together at the end of the day. He told the young Republicans to leave uh, leave their families at home, come to D.C. alone to fight the fight. Right. Leave the women back in the home state. You get it? Uh-huh. Newt Gingrich is also the one who pushed the use of hate speech. You know, those words you use to denigrate your enemy. Uh, not just, not just uh, the ideas of your opponent, uh, but, you know, the the vicious below-the-belt kind of talk. Now, I could call Newt Gingrich a scumbag, but that's his style. <laughs> he knows it works. 
because some of it will stick no matter, you know, no matter what, uh, even if, uh, things turn out, well, if, even if the, uh, nasty accusations turn out to be untrue, uh, ask Bill Clinton, the stain will never go away for Billy Bly. That's for darn sure. I think it's, uh, un-American. All this divisive stuff it brings to my mind the HUAC stuff, the House Un-American Activities Committee, back in the 1950s. The really, um, I don't know what to call it, uh, it's barbaric, uh, the hateful, uh, you know, it's not just political grandstanding, uh, it is ugly, vindictive, malevolent, the kind of attack that signals the wish to annihilate the enemy, not just to get his vote, you know. Barbarism is finally blood sport, you know. Uh, there's nothing humorous about getting your enemy's head on a stick. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I guess Betty Ford understood all this. She understood that uh, the presence of women could change the scene in Washington. Uh, she tried to take off the masks, right? I guess you could call it feminism. You could call it truth-telling. She did try to get real, tell it like it is. You're as sick as your secrets. Betty Ford showed, uh, showed us that breast cancer is not shameful, it's painful. I have a footnote here. I don't want to run on about Betty Ford too long, but no, there is a there is a TV drama series a masterpiece. If you have a moment to watch it, it's uh, all about the death of President John Adams' daughter from breast cancer. It's in reruns now. I know this is a stretch, but I just I just wanted to make a note here that uh, this is the best. This, well, I, I guess that not it isn't the definition of all the pain. It's it's the fact that it reminds us how horrific uh, it is to have oh things like home surgery in the 18th century. You know, now that we're struggling to get some decent health care, imagine an age when you know they took your children out for a walk so they wouldn't hear your screaming. Uh, if you get a chance to see the series John Adams, it's rerunning. It's got the wonderful Laura Linney as Abigail Adams and John, Paul Giamatti as John, John Adams. Uh, his final scenes after his wife's death when he's an old, old man, has these wonderful scenes when he just talks about the ecstasy of living, the the glory of existence itself. I think uh, when that actor when that actor departs the scene, I hope they use his final scenes in John Adams as his uh, epitaph. They were just uh, thrilling, great performances. Uh, so quickly seen and forgotten. Why? Oh, why can't the best of our TV theater be just rerun instead of always having more and more new stuff, worse stuff. Uh, 
I know so many folks who just say, oh, I've seen that, when, of course, they haven't seen it. They haven't really seen it. Uh, I'm so lazy, I, I don't want to waste time on anything new. I mean, you know, it's like a book. I wouldn't want to read it unless I'd read it before, so I had proof that it's worth the effort, on the other hand. <laughs> you know, so many uh, folks, uh, well... I don't know what it is about television. Uh, people tell me how it's the devil's paintbrush and everything, but then I, I hear from very intelligent folks that uh, they just want to, what they call, zone out in front of TV. Toni Morrison says that when she's too tired for anything but television, she watches Law and Order. This is our Nobel Prize-winning literary genius, Toni Morrison herself. Oh, what the hell, I guess. Law and Order does have that neat formula, you know, very restful, those familiar forms, kind of like Victorian novels, you know. I like those, you know, there's a vine and a grape, you read two chapters and then something happens, you know. Anyway... For me, uh, when I need a formula, when I need order, I go to music. That's my comfort food. I'm the sort of drama addict who searches and digs for psychological breakthroughs. I want the theater to be revolutionary. Tony Kirshner's Angels in America changed our culture back there in the 1990s. Remember the play about AIDS in which he talked about uh, uh, the monster Roy Cohen, the uh, the evil Mendu, the terrible Huac age, right? The time when, well, it, it was, what is it? Gay sensibility and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Angels in America is another show that I think we should just rerun. We don't need another play right away. Uh, reminds me of the way Waiting for Godot boxed the compass in the 1950s. Maybe we're all ready to see Waiting for Godot again. Maybe this time we'll really see it. Bit by bit, it takes uh, years sometimes for these plays to soak, for the blood to dry, you know. Then after a generation, we see them again, and we get it. Things creep forward. Uh, the great issues, you know, uh, they're personified uh, in stories about individuals, people caught up in history's hinges. You know, you can finally understand what happened to middle-class black Americans in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, the big issues, race, class, gender, they always need to be rerun, get a new treatment. Uh, uh, Ibsen's play, A Doll's House, that started, the well, back in the 1890s. It's been getting so many updates, I've lost track. The last one I really liked was probably the movie titled An Education. Yes, a young woman learns about life 
It's all about a 17-year-old English girl, but it's a completely new spin on adolescent sexuality. I I was really impressed because it was much closer to the reality that I knew. Um, it's set in 1961. Actually, that's the year I had just had my first child, 1961. That was long before the so-called 60s. Uh, these days, all the teenaged coming-of-age BS uh, is completely nauseating. Um, I know people thought that the movie Juno was touching. I just thought it was, what, harsh, cruel. Of course, we want our young people to be sophisticated, but I, I just thought it was dumb anyway. In an education, there's a wonderful bit. Emma Thompson plays a, a female villain, the headmistress of this girl's school. She does the wrong thing for all the right reasons. I was kind of shocked because uh, I love Emma Thompson and I was surprised. I, I really cannot imagine a headmistress that unkind. I, of course, I went to Mills College where the, uh, the elders, <laughs> well, they may have been like Betty Ford. They may have had a drink, but they certainly were, uh, what would you call it, supportive, uh, very kind to the young women, I guess, because they knew what those young girls were up against. Anyway, there's one moment in the film, An Education, let's see, it got all kinds of Oscars uh, back in 2009, and uh, right, uh, the most educational moment is one in which the 17-year-old girl, the English schoolgirl, goes to visit a sympathetic English teacher, uh, a woman who has been very angry with her and uh, given back a bottle of um, uh, Chanel Number no. 5. Right. Yes, the little girl brings it back from Paris after she's been naughty. And the English teacher says she can't accept it, you know. Anyway, uh, the teacher is, uh, well, she's going to try to help this young woman get into Oxford. And uh, the girl looks around the apartment of this single woman who lives this curious life, being unmarried and a serious scholar. And she says, oh, this is lovely. This is all you need. She sees the art and the uh, the evidence of what we call the good life, and she gets it. You know, that you can have the rich life, can have the life of the mind without a large income. I remember Sir Toni Morrison's book, Sula, I used to give to young women, the one in which Sula says she had her mind. Her woman friend says, you know, she didn't have the man, she didn't have this, that, and the other. And Sula says, but I had my mind. She said, I didn't have second-class life. You know, I didn't live somebody else's life. Back in the day, so many women, we tried to believe that, uh, that we could, what is that, uh, live a unique, an individual life. 
I tried doing it in 1957 in a cold water flat in Manhattan. Wasn't very comfortable, but what the hell? Anyway, context is everything. Okay, to be poor back in 1961, I guess it was different in England, of course. They were still half-starved from World War II. History is what it's all about, folks. We're all caught in the hinge of history. Uh, we had party time here in California, of course. No matter what. Uh, the women of my generation had fun. We all had fun. I know we did until the babies came. For that story, I'm going to jump to President Barack Obama and his mother. I love the story of Barack Obama's mom. He was born in 1961. 61. Ah, our president out in Hawaii. His mom was Stanley Ann Dunham. She was 18, right? Now, the marriage with uh, Obama Sr. lasted less than a year. And his mom had, of course, the loving parents that saved her life and his. That's the family that saved him. His dad, his father, is part of the global story of the mid-20th century. Kenya, what happened there? Check out a book that I just got and I haven't read it yet. Uh, it's by Sally Jacobs. It's called The Other Barack. It's a bio of the president's father. <laughs> Someone on the radio said, is it better to have had a bad father or to have had no father at all? Uh, I only know about our president's father from his book, his autobiography called Dreams from My Father. I have it on audio tape. I love it. Uh, it indicates, uh, the president's book indicates that he seems to have been haunted by his father, by his father's dreams and desires. Uh, some people with reductive attitudes simply say that alcohol and uh, womanizing destroyed the president's father but uh, I leave that to individuals to decide each one of us has to study the life of the president's father and decide whether uh, <laughs> whether the president would have been better off with his biological dad around. His life, of course, was a result of uh, Anne, his mom, and her parents, the all-American heritage that he got from her. Uh, yes, and he has said as much. Uh, it's very interesting. The children of <clears throat> single moms seem to me to be... <clears throat> as well as likely to have uh, a good chance but anyway check it out it's called it's Sally Jacobs and the the title is the other the other Obama the other Barack Obama I think it cracks the cliche that boys need their dads uh, of course uh, our president had an Indonesian stepfather that guy had a powerful impact. Ten, what was it? Almost ten years. 
he was a little 10-year-old kid and, and his dad, his stepfather, was around during the four years in Indonesia and later on. And most of all, his grandfather, uh, he's, what is it, he's the, he would be the male figure I would start with. And then the Indonesian stepfather. Uh, his biological dad is one of the tragic elite, the educated African men who were trapped in the post-colonial Africa, a traditional society with tribal ethics, with polygamy. They called his dad Double Double. That's what he did when he went in the bar. They cried out, Double Double. He had two doubles. Reminds me of my Irish father. All charm and arrogance and... Oh, God. What tragedies these men live. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday at this same time. Till then, go easy. This has been Jennifer Stone. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. On Sunday, July 17th from 2 to 7 p.m. at Little Bobby Hutton Park, a.k.a. Defermary Park, on 18th and Adeline in West Oakland, there will be a memorial tribute to the life of former political prisoner Geronimo Gijaga, who recently transitioned on June 2nd of 2011. KPFA's own Avacha will be performing, as well as local jazz legends, Fabian Kuchijagalia, and the first woman to join the Black Panther Party, violinist Tarika Lewis. Yours truly, the Minister of Information, JR, from the Morning Mix, will be hosting. For more information, you can go to itsabouttimebpp.com. This is a benefit for the It's About Time nonprofit organization.